0: All right, y'all. We're going to talk for the second time now about Shakespeare, his life, the historical background of Macbeth, James the uh, First, once James the Sixth of Scotland, his parents, who one of them happened to be assassinated, one executed. And so he's a very interesting guy. Very interested in the supernatural as well, which plays into the reason why uh, there's so much of the supernatural and witches and demonology within the Macbeth itself. So, very quickly, I just want to review a couple things about uh, Shakespeare so that you are prepared for the quiz on friday very important to know that he was born 1564 died 1616 the name of the period in um and ple- in, in drama that he occupied was there were actually two periods the elizabethan named for queen elizabeth uh the virgin queen as well as the jacobian um period those would be like sort of bonus things. remember that he was the son of john and mary Arden shakespeare that his father ran out of money and that is part of the reason why he left school so early here is britain I'm just going very quickly through these slides to review. Lots of animation, so it takes some time. Remember that his education was incomplete, but he studied rhetoric, logic, history, and Latin would have had something like Latin 8 to 12 every day, 1 to 5, so quite a bit of Latin. It takes a long time to learn a language, especially a language that's not uh, particularly spoken during your time. All right, remember that the name of his wife was, does anybody recall what the name of his wife was? Very similar to a, a woman who is an actress these days, yes? Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway. Does anybody recall how old Shakespeare was when he got married? Yes? 18. He was 18. Does anybody recall how old Anne Hathaway was? Yes? 24. Twi- close, close, yes? 26. 26. yes. So there's a big difference between them. Uh, something I didn't say yesterday, which I should have, is that uh, you could have deduced this from the fact that when he died, he left uh, horses, money, and uh, something else I'll recall in a minute. Yes? Uh, well, uh, we'll talk about that second tier bed in a second. But he left, uh, he left m- money and at least property to two of his stepsons, which means that he had at least how many daughters? Two. Two. So he actually had a daughter um, before he had these twins. I can't recall her name at this particular moment, but within six months of being married, so it might very much have been a so-called shotgun wedding. If you have a child six months after you get married, well, how long does it take a child to be developed within a woman's womb? Nine, years. Nine months. Nine months. <laughs> and so... <laughs> So there are some things that are fairly obvious about the so-called Shotgun Wedding. In fact, theres a, I think there's a Billy Idol song literally called Shotgun Wedding, which is written about his sister. Um, all right, in any case, 1585, Hamnet and Judith were born to him very sadly. His son Hamnet, for whom we think possibly gave his name to the, the tragedy Hamlet, died. He died. This is a time of plague. One reason why plague often occurred at this time is that London was very much overcrowded. They didn't have a plumbing system. They didn't have toilets that were connected to a sewer system that meant that, well, people would publicly defecate and that would mean that that attracted nasty little bugs and rodents who so would eat that and then would land on other humans. It's, whenever you get rodents and flies around, you get playing and pestilence. In fact, that's part of the reason why undoubtedly at the beginning of the Iliad there was a pestilence that broke out. The gods are angry at you because you are not conducting yourself in the appropriate way. You are not following the laws that keep people clean, as it were. In fact, there are some ideas that in the Old Testament, the reason why the Jews didn't like certain foods like pork was because they were easily corruptible, or that they could spread disease. So that's a very interesting <laughs> idea. In any case, you want people to be clean, you want them to be healthy, make sure that they can use the restroom at the right time. Uh, and in any case, yes. So, uh, something I mentioned. I call these the university playwrights, the people who look down on uh, William Shakespeare, because he started as... Somebody who would, uh, he wasn't a supporter, he was actually somebody who would park the horses of the elites when he first joined um, his theater company, which was at that time called the Lord Chamberlain's Men, later called the King's Men, because they were under the patronage of James I, for whom he performed Macbeth after constructing it in 10 days. 10 days. So, speaking of a procrastinator. In any case, um, he was looked at, down on by people who were called the University Wits, so I want you to make that addition. It's not the University Playwrights, but the University Wits, They were Christopher Marlowe, Thomas Kidd, and several others as well. They had university uh, positions. They did not like actors. They did not necessarily like directors. They didn't even necessarily go to their plays amongst the commoners who would be there. Shakespeare is a very different sort of person. He's bottom-up. In fact, one of the reasons I would suggest that he becomes such a great playwright is that he had to write plays for money. and That meant, A, they had to be interesting, and B, he got a ton of practice writing them and then seeing feedback on them. I can say as a lecturer to you all, I lecture several times a day, several days a week, several weeks a year. You get better when you do something all the time. There's really only one way about it. So he was so prolific. Do any of you recall how many plays he supposedly had? I've I've seen two different numbers on this. I gave you one, but I'm going to give you a second one. Yes? 38. 38 is the one I gave you. 36 is the one I often see, which suggests to me what exactly? Two of his plays must have been considered spurious. I'll look up which ones of those they are. That must not have belonged to him. Yes. spurious means not written by him in this case. Not written by him. All right. Good. Remember also 1583 to 1592 are his last years. Oh, yes. I told you that he had to leave his home at one point under some sort of circumstances. I looked that up. The circumstances were sort of funny. He had been caught poaching a couple of times from a rich landowner in order to get some food because he was fairly poor at this time. Um, and he got caught this time, and he wanted to escape a whipping. He had been whipped uh, at least one time before, and well, you know that's a pretty good way to run away from home, or a pretty good reason, yes. Was it actually so true that he didn't write uh, Act Three, Scene Five? was written- That's almost certainly true, yes. And we'll go through act, scene three, uh, act Three, Scene Five, and look at Thomas Middleton's work there. You'll notice a very different theme. You'll notice that there's, uh, you'll notice there's weird singing and dancing added to it you'll notice that there's a improper perception of Macbeth. they they call him sort of happy he's very much not happy at this point you'll see you'll actually see his psyche his mind his soul degenerate during the course of this play he'll try and reason his way out of that and say why should i feel this way and i shouldn't think about this and that and you'll probably see some some of those elements in your own life have you ever thought well you know if i really think about it i shouldn't feel bad for having done this because the person really deserved it It's like do you still feel the feeling that you feel Yeah, because your emotional systems, your body as a human, it does not answer to your mind, necessarily. Yes? On the test, um, it'll be called the University Wits? They will be called the University Wits, that's correct. They will be called the University Wits, not just the University Playwrights. All right, good. So we know that he performed in a theater called The Old Globe. We know that he first built it in 1599. You know also that it burned down in 1613, which tells you that it was probably made mostly of what? Wood. Wood yes very easy for wood to burn down i'll talk a little bit about the gunpowder plot today um and james not quite yet but remember that was in 1605 the globe theater there okay yes the plays remember that it's 36 to 38 several uh, 14 comedies 10 histories 10 tragedies 4 romances i'll find out which of uh, the plays were actually considered spurious uh, remember also that he was also a poet, would have been a poet uh, for trade if he could have gotten away with it, if he had been rich enough to just write poetry. Many people say he would have. Remember that he wrote with classical themes Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucretia, as well as 154 sonnets. I'll probably share a couple of the famous ones with you during the course of this unit. Um, one thing to keep in mind about the crowd of Shakespeare, they were mostly illiterate, they would not have been able to read themselves. The Gutenberg Press would be coming around. Uh, It came around this time. uh, I need to figure out exactly when the Gutenberg Press came out, but it was just around this time that literacy was spreading throughout Europe. In any case, the two types of stories that these people would have known are the two types of stories that you generally know. Judeo-Christian stories from their time going to church, whether they're Protestant or Catholic, and also classical mythology stories. Uh, The sorts that Ovid, Virgil, Homer, the ones that you've read before. All right, good, 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 good. Remember that he's buried in Holy Trinity Church in Stratford, where he was born. And also that in his will, what is it that he gave to his wife Anne Hathaway? Yes. His second best bad. His second best bad, which we speculated on meant that maybe they didn't love each other that much anymore. Maybe he was a known, maybe he knew himself to be a cheater. Maybe she was a cheater. Who knows what that means? But it's not very Odyssean and Penelopean. In any case, remember, he did not write in Old English. Beowulf was written in Old English. We tried to read this yesterday. White, we gardener and yardagum. Who knows what that means. We don't speak Old English. Um, let's see. Middle English. Also, he doesn't speak in that. That's what Chaucer speaks in, as well as uh, Mallory writes in his Canterbury Tales. I'll probably add in one of those stories to this course in the next several years. In fact, uh, when we look at this, we can kind of understand it, but it's still pretty hard. We read it off the the variety. And this cleric is really it to wait us at Benin Herpin. Ben, he found a early thing. And we made a joke that that sounded like Swedish shaft yesterday. And it really does. It really does. Probably his cadence is based on this, which is sort of funny. When I was in fourth grade, I laughed when a teacher first told me there was a such a thing as a wave called a microwave. Because I foolishly thought that microwaves, the waves themselves, were named for the appliance named the microwave. That was a very foolish thing for me to think because what is the obvious relationship between those two things? opposite right the appliance is obviously named for the fact that it utilizes microwaves which already existed in any case shakespeare wrote in early modern english he writes in a dialect very similar to ours ours is called modern english he wrote in early modern english it's a little bit different from what we speak not too different also keep in mind that the other piece i'm definitely going to quiz you on this of what formed our language is not only shakespeare's 36 38 plays but also a very specific english translation of the bible does anybody know but it was called it's still a very famous one. It's the one that has all, all the ths at the end. Quote, the, the yes, King, David. King James Bible, the KJV. And so this is the date for it. You need to know this. 1611 is when that came out. So it was contemporary with Shakespeare. Um, do I think that he wrote it? No. We know who wrote it. And but the same King James for whom it was written, same King James for whom Macbeth was written. So there you go. Time of high literary. Achievement, yes? 1611, 1611. Remember that Macbeth was first written and performed 1606, we think. Right after the Guy Fawkes plot, or the Gunpowder plot is 1605. All right, so I talked to you a little bit about words he uses. One fell swoop, flesh and blood, vanish into fair, uh, fair, or excuse me, thin air, vanish into thin air, words. Uh, Fair and foul, he uses that. Those would be the first words of this play fair is foul and foul is fair double double toil and trouble uh fire burning cauldron bubble i could not remember that this morning that's what, what, part of the reason i'm re-recording this lecture okay so don't be a green-eyed monster and get uh jealous about things come what may well, what else can you do sometimes somebody doesn't treat you right you gotta send him packing and well you know unless he has a heart of gold these are all expressions that we've got gotten from shakespeare um but let's keep moving on you don't need to write that okay good Finally, get into the stuff that is not reviewed. Get into today. Elizabethan theatrical conventions. All right, a couple things that we need to know. I'm going to just throw these out right now. First thing is this. What is a theatrical convention? Well, it's a suspension of reality. You know how when you go to watch a play or to watch a movie, whether it be animated or not, you have to sit there and sort of grant the conceits of the movie. There might be green people. There might be trees that can talk and Lord's. The rings. There might be space aliens. Obviously, these are things that we have not encountered in reality, but the things that, these are things that we accept are part of the universe, of the uh, uh, the dramatic universe that we are perceiving. The so-called uh, cosmo-poetic space that we are occupying. In any case, with a play, and this is part of the reason why you might consider plays boring, besides the fact that they usually have language that you don't fully understand, is because, well, you have to imagine a lot. The, uni- the uniforms, or excuse me, the uh, co- costumes There we go, I think I have one bit here The costumes and the scenes weren't super well done See y'all baseball player, see y'all You too, yeah, you were so engaged I know, exactly In any case, a lot of imagining had to be done You had to grant the conceits of the scenes Like obviously you don't go into the woods They don't have super special effects at this time They are very primitively designed, uh Both scenes and costumes So you sort of have to imagine the person in front of you With the paper burger king crown is actually a king And, well, our is very good at doing that sort of thing Yes, absolutely. Because that's already better than reading. If you think about reading, how much does your imagination have to provide for the images that are being described in words? Okay. All of it. All of it. Exactly right. Like they can describe where like a white palace with ebon walls, or I don't know how that would make sense. A white palace with ebon doors and golden handles, but who has to imagine that? You do. You do. And so that was a big part of Shakespeare's theater. That said, if the design of the costumes was not particularly great, and the design of the sets was not particularly great, what do you think he focused on making very good that would make it so that people's imaginations could really understand what was happening? Yes? His story. His story. Yes, his story. In particular, how would that story be conveyed? By means of what? Yes? The dialogue. The dialogue. The words. Right, exactly. Exactly. Part of the reason his language is so beautiful, besides the fact that he wanted to be a poet, is that he had to do almost everything with words. His words had to convey the story, so he had to be very articulate. In fact, he is. He is. Alright, good, 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 good. Alright. A little bit more. And I'm going to make sure to get this right. If I get this wrong, I'll make sure to adjust this tomorrow. So, we have a couple more conventions. Types of speech. Soliloquy. You can see the word soul in there, which means alone. Sole fides. Uh, Faith alone is one of the Theological perspectives against faith justified by acts that James puts forward that we talked about during the Paradiso in the Fixed Stars. In any case, soliloquies, or soliloquizing, is when you are alone as an actor on a stage, and you are speaking forth your most inward thoughts. Why do they do this? Well, in the novel, you can say he thought. In a movie, you can pan onto the face of a character, have them not move their lips. And you can sort of hear an echoey version of their voice, which lets you know that they're thinking. Well, how do you know what a character is thinking in a play? You don't, unless you put them alone on a stage, and often, and this is something they do with asides too, you darken the rest of the stage, spotlight them, and have them think something through by speaking. That's important. Asides, very similar to soliloquies. Asides are when there are still people on the stage, but the character actually walks to the side of the stage, As the lights dimmed on everybody else, they usually are still as well. And then you, boom, shoot them with a spotlight. That said, you couldn't do that at this time because plays were Since there were no electric lights, when were plays often performed? Mostly at night, or excuse me, during the day, not at night. Something interesting, though, is Macbeth, given its supernatural conceits, and the fact that it does take place in a place of sort of darkness, both darkness of the soul as well as literal darkness, is actually performed by candlelight. For King James, which I do think makes it a little freaky. Uh, also, there's plenty of blood and gore in Shakespeare. Uh, Titus Andronicus is well known for being the bloodiest play ever created. I don't teach that to you because I'm told it's very simplistic. I haven't read it myself. I'll read it this summer. And of course, the supernatural are going to be a big part of this. Fate will be a big theme as well as can. Are there witches? Do they have supernatural powers? Do they have the power even to set a king? All right. Good, 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 good. All right. These last pieces I'll I'll give to you, but I don't know how much I think of them. Uh, For Macbeth in particular, use of disguises and mistaken identity is not a major feature. If we read Othello in the time to come, you'll see that mistaken identity does become a big issue. Midsummer Night Dream as well. Sort of the idea of displacement. The idea that some people think something is happening or somebody did something, but they get it wrong. That's often used by Shakespeare. In any case, sometimes, and we'll have to see whether this is actually true in Macbeth, the highest-ranking speaker gets to speak last. So in scenes where King Duncan is present, we'll have to see whether it is he that speaks last when Macbeth becomes king, spoiler alert, we'll have to see whether he's the one who speaks last, see whether this conceit is correct. Also in tragedies, there are often multiple murders, especially in Coriolanus, as well as um, Othello, and really several of them. We'll see multiple murders as well, especially in Cold Blood and Macbeth. It is definitely not a comedy. It is very much a tragedy. Something interesting said about Shakespeare's plays, and as you read the 36 of them during the courses of your life, you, or the courses of your life, you can see whether this is true. One thing said of them, which may or may not be true, you'll have to find this out for yourself, is this. His comedies end with a marriage. Uh, much Ado About Nothing certainly does. And his tragedies end with a funeral. Romeo and Juliet certainly Uh, plays that out. All right. Now, all right, let's get talking about Macbeth and James I. I'm going to go fairly quickly through these next three slides or so. Okay. Macbeth was first written in, we think, 1606 and then performed. This was one year after the gunpowder plot on James's life. So something I want you to understand about this King James I who was first King James VI of Scotland is that he was very, how do I say, he was very concerned for his own well-being and for what it meant to be king. For two major reasons. His father was uh, assassinated as well as his mother was um, executed. His father was, I think I have it on this slide here, Lord Darnley, Henry Stuart. And his mother was uh, Mary Queen of Scots. And so, we'll talk about, uh, and of course he had had an attempt on his life as well as the entire royal family's life, as well as the entire parliament's life by Guy Fawkes. And the, um, and the Catholics who attempted to destroy the Protestant parliament during the gunpowder plot, which is now celebrated as Guy Fawkes Day every day, or excuse me, every year uh, since by the Brits. In any case, remember, remember the 5th of November, for those of you who have seen the Forbid That Exactly. So Macbeth is one of Shakespeare's most topical plays because it takes place with somebody who was almost assassinated just a year ago and is obsessed with the idea of the supernatural and assassination we will see assassination here. we will see a king assassinated we will also see supernatural figures we'll even see a goddess hecate whether she is uh whether she was added in by thomas middleton or by shakespeare himself will be potentially relevant to our analysis so this is a dramatization of scottish history macbeth he's scottish and he starts as a scottish thing and he gets upgraded to another scottish thing and he becomes a scottish king something interesting about the thanes of the kings at this time is They do not have the law of primogeniture. What is primogeniture? Primogeniture is when your first son becomes the inheritor to your rank and property. And so, generally, we think of kings having sons who are princes, and those princes become kings. That's not how it goes. And uh, that's not how it went in Scotland. That's not how it goes in Macbeth. Generally, it's the strongest thing who succeeds you. And there will be an issue with that when we get into this play. In any case, associated with James I. So... Shakespeare himself and his company changed their names from the Lord Chamberlain's men to the king's men. Why? Well, the king became their patron. And who was the king? James I. The same James for whom the King James Bible, or the version of the Bible, is named. Ah, the inclusion of Banquo. Something you'll notice, especially in the early acts of the play. So Banquo seems to be a good friend of Shakespeare. Also happens to see the witches at the same time, which would be good evidence for the fact that they are, in fact, witches and women, and not just internal psychological sort of states of... Uh, uh, of Macbeth, unless they are states that are shared by Macbeth and Banquo. Something interesting about this is, and you need to know this especially for the quiz, he is an ancestor of James I. And so the reason Banquo is included is to make James the First seem more honorable, because his ancestor was more honorable. And in fact Banquo will end up being uh murdered by not Macbeth directly but by his hired thugs. Um but it will be said in the very first scenes um I think it's actually Act 1, Scene 3, that Banquo will be lesser, but also greater than Macbeth. Not as happy, but also happier. Uh, This is an illustration of what's called equivocation. When you say something in one way, but it actually means another. Uh, When you are syntactically ambiguous, is what the scholars say. And the reason is, is that Banquo will not be king as Macbeth is, but Macbeth will not have an heir. Banquo's children, his descendants, will become kings. And so who actually gets the better deal? probably banquo probably banquo and this would have been something that james the first would have loved to hear my ancestor it's you know and it actually reminds me quite a bit of which work did you read that was considered by some a work of roman propaganda where there is a divine ancestor of a current ruler uh spoken about in glowing terms it was a roman work yes uh, the, Aeneid. the Aeneid, of course when it talks about the uh descendants, uh, or the ancestors of Julius Caesar, Octavian Caesar, uh, through Romulus and Remus, and up through Aeneas himself, who is himself the son of Venus, who is herself the daughter of Jupiter, and therefore the father of the gods is related to kings. Right. All right, what are some of the thematic tropes in this play, some of the major central themes? Spectre of treason. Treason will happen, a king will be murdered by a thing. That's something that James ran into in his own life. His father, who was king, was assassinated. Yes. Wait, what's that? a thane? A thane. Great question. What is a thane? So have you all heard of dukes before? Mm-hmm. A duke is, I believe, the rank directly below uh, king in England. And in fact, it comes from the Latin word for to lead on someone. So educate has the word duke on it. And at the end of this play, we'll actually see the role of earl given. So I'm not sure what the rank of earl as opposed to duke is. But in any case, in the Scottish hierarchy, king at the top, the dukes are Thanes. So Thanes are dukes. They are leading noblemen. They'd be like senators in our time, or in the Roman times. Good. Psychological and social impact of regicide. What does it do to people when their king is murdered? There was an idea at this time called the divine right of kings. Kings were supposed to have a direct connection to God. In fact, even if you look at different times, different places, this is often a theme. If you look at... The eight, you know the seventh eighth century when uh, the Islamic religion first came about it first split because there were people who believed and this is still the major distinction I believe between the Shia and the Sunni that uh, there should be a direct connection between the next leader a blood connection between him and the first uh, and the first leader or ruler of Islam and in fact yeah, and that was Muhammad. There's a very similar idea of a direct descent in the Catholic religion as well it's not done by blood but by symbolic blood you have to be the pope and there needs to be a direct uh connection between how the pope is chosen and then who rules the vatican and that was all upset uh between the time of dante and uh, shakespeare when there were three popes around at one particular time and well that helped when the protestant reformation came around in any case there's a lot there we'll talk about it as we go the precariousness of power when are you safe in this world Even if you're king, are you safe? No, we've seen that both in, I mean, we've seen that in literature and in reality. His father was a king. He got what? Assassinated. Well, there you go. In Macbeth, you might want to think about this. He had to kill a king in cold blood in order to become king. What does he know for a fact? That even when you are a king, you are not what? You're never safe. So when can you be safe? And that's something he's going to talk about more and more as he descends into madness as he goes on his killing spree And anyway, ah yes and also the demonic potential of the supernatural even if you are king what can still get you supernatural forces who knows who knows all right good i know these are sort of small but let's write these down so as i was telling you james believed in the divine and supreme right of kingship and this is something that will actually mess up john milton in the 17th century he'll write a work on regicide where he talks about it being appropriate to kill a king under certain conditions And it'll actually directly connect the blindness that he suffers to the fact that he wrote that work on regicide, which I think is very interesting. He also attributes his uh, blindness to something he ate. Uh, Some sort of vapor came up from his stomach and blinded him. But, you know, decent ideas. In any case, simultaneously did James live in fear of his life? As I told you earlier, his father was assassinated. His name was Lord Darnley. His actual name was Henry Stewart. He was part of the Stewart dynasty. Uh, Mother executed Mary, Queen of Scots. Sorry to her. Uh, and then, of course, there was the gunpowder plot in 1605 on James's life, as well as his family's life, as well as his parliament's life. So he lived with the fact that royals were constantly being aimed at, attempted to kill. And like I told you, uh, that the gunpowder plot is still uh, celebrated, or it's foiling, um, is, st- is uh, celebrated as Guy Fawkes Day on the 5th of November every year. Alright, good. I only include this bet on Father Henry Garnett here, who wrote a treatise on equivocation because he was at this time accused and stood trial for his work on equivocation and tried to use equivocation in his uh trial the concept of of equivocation is like i mentioned earlier an attempt to use linguistic ambiguity to evade the truth so if i say you're both as happy as i am and not happy you are lesser and greater do you know exactly what i'm saying when i use those words No, you can see that there is meaning underlying what I'm saying, but I'm not being obvious, I'm not being direct about what I'm saying. Apparently, the use of language at this time had gotten rather legal, and people thought that this was an appropriate way to to conduct discourse. Well, this guy got put to death, and so that tells you what people thought about that. All right, next one. Background, I say of the Reformation here, but it's really the background of the Church of England. I just want you to know a couple facts very quickly. How the Church of England first came to be, uh the the actual protestant reformation of course took place in germany with the very famous 95 theses of martin luther and lots of conflict after that but how did the church of england come around which is now called the anglican church and if you're an episcopalian that is your church that is your church well henry the wanted to divorce catherine of aragon and yes it is actually a church that is based on the fact that a king wanted to divorce a woman and that is its raison d'etre as the french would say in 1527 england then split from the roman catholic church Founded the Church of England in 1536. And therefore the king, not the pope, was at its head. So very different. It's like a purely secular authority. It gives secular authorities authority over sacred authorities rather than vice versa. And so there's no none of that balancing that Dante would have liked. Well, in the decades preceding Shakespeare's birth, England underwent a prolonged period of religious and political tilt. Tumult as the throne passed swiftly between Henry VIII's three children who were differing religions. Edward, Mary, and Elizabeth. So the country would swing between, uh, between Catholicism as well as Protestantism. So things change very fast, very quickly, very often. and So that's not very good for the stability of a people. In any case, with each shift in allegiance came the threat of violence and persecution for those who were deemed disloyal and therefore heretical. Which, you know, that's a big problem. If you're a Protestant and you have a Protestant king and you're saying all the right things and all of a sudden the Protestant king dies and there's now a Catholic queen then all of a sudden many of the things that you think and say might be considered heretical, and then that which was normal to you one day might get you killed the next. People don't really like when that happens too fast. Alright, a couple notes on Macbeth's construction. In 1604, a year after they had become the king's men, I'm just reading this, servants to James I, they mounted a play dramatizing the events that took place on 5 August 1600, when James VI, that's James I of England, was. that's when he was still just the king of Scotland, Nearly escaped an assassination attempt by John Ruthven, Earl of Gowrie. So, this guy has uh, had a couple, uh, this James I has had a couple different assassination attempts put on him. The play is now lost, but as a contemporary reported, was politically explosive and consequently forbidden. So, or forbidden. So, something interesting. This is the reason why Macbeth had to be written in 10 days. Also, probably part of the reason why it is so short. Half the size of Hamlet or so. James enacted an old piece of Elizabethan legislation in response, which was, no use of contemporary likenesses can be done. As in, nobody who is currently alive, who is a political figure, can be used in these plays. Well, there you go, there you go. And so, if James happens to be in a play, and that's the play that they were going to perform as a king's men for James, what do you have to do with that play? You have to get rid of it and write a new one. And that's why Macbeth got rid Uh, Also, just something I want to note to you is that Macbeth speaks a full one-third of the lines in the play. Which means that it is a play about kings, it is a play about a Scottish king, it is a play about Macbeth. And in some ways, it is therefore a play about James and the sort of person he could be. Alright, good. A couple things about James himself. We have about eight minutes left here, so let's make sure we're focusing. James is a strong believer in the diabolical powers of witchcraft. Need you working he was an author of a treatise called *Demonology*. Demonology. So, something interesting about him, besides the fact that he first wrote that in 1597, is that he had himself presided over the violent persecutions of witches in Scotland. He himself put them to death. He wrote about demonology. He really cared about supernatural forces. He was a very superstitious individual. And you can imagine that if you had multiple assassination attempts on your life, as well as your father was executed, and your mother—or rather, your father was assassinated, and your mother was executed you might yourself be pretty superstitious and believe in the supernatural. So when Macbeth features the supernatural, when William Shakespeare includes within his play the supernatural, you can tell that he's slightly pandering to his what? His audience, his king. Exactly right. And so, we'll also see the witches equivocate in the very first scenes. We'll talk about that, um, uh, well, in the next six minutes, that's for sure. So, two of the major themes that we're going to run into are How can supernatural forces affect the fates of others? Cool, we've already written about that as of yesterday. And what is the implication that the divine right of kingship is susceptible to the manipulation by occult works? How can something which is divinely ordained be affected by evil supernatural acts by humans? And can it? Is what is supernatural or magical a destruction or a rift in the divine order? And is that which is magical so demonic or so evil that it can actually change the will of God, change the fates of men, change even the divine right of kings? It's a major question. James, obviously, very much obsessed with this subject. All right, and so, Macbeth engages with some of James's personal preoccupations. And so, what do we see here? Well, the play is itself paradoxical and incongruous. Things are weird, things are strange. It is like it is itself A work of equivocation. Nothing is simple. You have a hero, a protagonist, who's actually the villain. You have competition between individual agency, that's your own capacity to make free choices, as well as supernatural uh, forcing of you to do things. If somebody casts a spell over you, like a love potion, gives you a love potion, are you in control of the fact that you're in love? Sort of like Dido with Eros from Aeneid Book 4 and Book 1. And then, of course, equivocation and syntactical ambiguity—they mean the same thing—will be a big part of this play. We'll see that immediately. Let's get to the play itself, Macbeth. I'm going to get through at least the first scene or two. All right, here we are. We see three witches. They remind us very much of the Moirai or the Grai, Grey, excuse me, the Graoi of Greek tradition. Those are the three Fates, the Spinners, as they're called. Uh, I always forget the names of all of them, but one is named Clotho, one is named Lachesis, ah yes, and one is named Atropos. So are these the fates themselves, or are these simply three women with supernatural powers, or are they just three strange women that we think have supernatural powers? They do seem capable of predicting the future, and if they can predict the future, is the future already written? Do we have control over the future? Major question of this uh, play, and I can already see the answer to one person here, and I'll look forward to looking at that in your writing. So, three witches gather and say that they'll meet with Macbeth before the sunset after a terrible battle that's been fought nearby. Perhaps this is a metaphor for the entire play, and them seeing him after he is about to die at the sunset, but it is also very much literal as well, because they are going to see him in Act 1, Scene 3. Three witches are later referred to as the Three Weird Sisters. The Weird Sisters are a band, a rock band, in uh, Harry Potter, if you ever watch that series or read it. And they say fair is foul and foul is fair. That is an instance of, what's that term we learned about that means syntactical ambiguity? Just now? Yes? Isn't it one thing that means something else? Yes, but what's the term for that? It is equivocation. You need to know that term. Fair is foul and foul is fair. is a good example of equivocation. Very good. All right. That's a very short scene. We just see these three witches talk to each other. They sort of chant. We'll share that together soon. So, Act One, Scene Two. We meet the king, King Duncan. And so, what has just happened? Well, there was a traitor in the midst of Scotland. There was a guy named Macdonald, and even though it looks like Macdonald, sometimes we have different pronunciations in American English and British English. In fact, the Brits have a they have a river called the Thames, which looks like the Thames. And Macbeth starts off as the thane of Glam's looks like Glamis to us. In any case, this traitor has accrued an army. With that army, he has joined with Norwegian, we would call Norwegian forces, Vikings led by a, game, a guy named Sweno. And in fact, there's a third traitor named the uh, the thane of Cawdor, who dies in a very noble way, uh, according to account. Who all join together in order to overthrow this current king. Macbeth is sent with Banquo to overthrow or to quell this rebellion he does a great job. And in fact, this first scene, also just something to note, is note that the King Duncan has two sons. One is named Donald Bane, not a big figure, not the biggest figure in this, as well as Malcolm, who will soon be uh, named the Prince of Cumberland. And so we hear a little bit about the fight between Macbeth's forces and Banquo's forces and the traitor MacDonald's forces. Macbeth brandished his steel, which smoked with bloody execution execution and then he carves his way through mcdonald's men he has a five and a half foot long broadsword by the way two-handed it's huge you can cut people in half and in fact when he comes face to face with the slave mcdonald at which point Macbeth thus unseamed him from the nave that's your belly button to the chops that's your mouth he cuts him in what in half and then stuck his head upon the battlements then did what with his head Stuck it on a pike on the battlements of a castle so that everybody could see it and see what happens to traitors. What's interesting about that is, do you remember what happens to the the schismatics in Dante's Inferno? What's done to them? Yes? Uh, Yeah, one of them has his face cut in half, one has his belly cut in half. Ali and Muhammad are the two big ones there. Exactly. This guy gets cut in half too for trying to cut this nation in half. Yes? That kind of sounds like something that happened to a character, and I think... um... Iliad? Uh, there's a guy. Ah, there. yes, Dolan, who has his head cut off while he's still speaking? Yeah. Exactly so. Very good. Very good, very good, very good. All right, what else do I need here? All right, so there's the initial battle. Uh, you know what? I'm actually just going to talk about more of this later. This is a good lecture. We've gotten into the first act. What you need to know is that Macbeth has just called a rebellion and is going to receive the fruits of his labor. He's going to receive the rank of Thane of Cawdor after being Thane of Glamis, after putting down the Thane of Cawdor's uh, rebellion alongside of MacDonald as well lo- alongside the Vikings uh, led by Sueño.